Yes, it's us at the Story Hive with our autumn winter podcast series. And here we go with our first story. And today, as we've been doing across this last section, we want to actually take things from one section. Today's section is from the world of ink and dreams, which is based around the world of tattooing and ink on skin and stories with a twist, stories you won't see coming. So we're going to kick you off today with the opening one from that book, and it's called The Tattoo. There's a little known fact in the world of tattooing. If a client brings a design with them, once it's been tattooed onto them, they own the copyright. They own it, not the tattooist. The tattooist isn't supposed to put that design on anyone else. It's the client's own unique image. And that is apparently a fact. Well, that is according to the girl I met in the bar. It were just the two of us. It was one o'clock in the morning. We were at a hotel, I, I won't give the name. Suffice to say, it was one of those fancy places featured in magazines, fashionable, overpriced. I didn't know that, I'd said, and she'd nodded, emphatically, her arms a testament to the tattooist art, a delicate spider's web on one, punctuated with vivid red roses. The other arm a blaze of colour of huge white water lilies set in a tangle of green leaves and tendrils, blue lines for water, she was striking, tattoos or no. Beautiful, in fact. And the tattoos enhanced her obvious energy, her presence. I'd felt it as soon as she'd spoken. She'd first acknowledged me by raising her glass. We were the only people at the bar. It turned out we'd both come for the wedding, Nick and Shakira. Me for Nick and her for Shakira. It had been that morning, the reception now long over. I'd never seen her before, not at any of the parties although I hadn't seen Nick and Shakira myself for over a year, travelling part of my work, lots of it. And I'd nodded interestingly. Wow, I never heard that. Mm. She laughed and fixed me with a stare, and she continued. Some people say tattoos are more than ink, you know. And I nodded politely. This was obviously her thing. Me, I didn't have any. They'd never appealed to me, to be honest. Not, not really my thing. But she was beautiful. Plus... I was a little drunk, and she could have talked to me about anything, and I'd have listened. And she pointed to our glasses, a tiny movement, and the barman appeared to slide into view, efficiently topping up our drinks, and I smiled. She shook her head. Oh yes, there's more to these than, she searched for the words, than just ink. And I raised my glass and smiled, and she clinked hers against it. Look. She leaned forward, close. I could smell her perfume. Dark, sandalwood, and she moved her arm closer and I peered at it, gently touching her smooth skin, hopefully not making her think I was trying anything on. It was an intricate design, highly detailed. Can you see it? Her voice was low, soft, and I looked again. I had no idea what it was. The drawing was very detailed. There. I saw it. I must have pulled her face, my eyebrows lifting. She chuckled. Oh, well done. Not everyone sees. I half smiled and I muttered something about liking art. And I narrowed my eyes. There it was, half obscured. A tiny figure of a man, wrapped in green tendrils, pinned like a starfish, splayed, arms wide, outstretched, legs parted, held firm, head back, its mouth wide open, its eyes too, finely drawn, caught in a tangle. It was unsettling. 
She looked away, her tone now harder, briefly, and then she shrugged. One of my exes. Her shoulders fell. The last one, Rex, the bastard. I nodded as if I understood. To be honest, it seemed macabre. Seeing that tiny figure? Why have that painted onto you? That was just odd. An ex-partner marked onto your skin so permanently like that. And a thought struck me. Oh, oh, I said, your, your last ex. And she looked at me and shrugged. Hmm, unlucky in love. And I fought the impulse to pat her shoulder. But I looked at the tiny figure again. It unsettled me. And then just below, I thought I could see a second smaller figure, almost lost in the distance. And she caught my expression and moved her arm back quickly. Oh, I said again, yeah. Um, can you get things like that removed or with lasers? Now warming up to my theme. I mean, those guys could turn it into something else, right? Like a dolphin or a fish. I paused. I, I'm pretty sure I read that somewhere. And she suddenly smiled brightly. Well, yes, you can. And then she just trailed off and I sipped my drink. And she didn't speak for a while, but she looked at me. But you see, if you change something, you take something away, you know, from your original intent, you know? She sighed heavily. I didn't know, but I nodded again. She really was stunning. And I smiled encouragingly. And she looked around us, furtively almost. Rex was a bastard. Her voice was just flat and empty suddenly. He said my tattoos were silly, an affectation, a silly rebellion. He said they didn't have any power. I felt uncomfortable suddenly. I didn't know why, but the information seemed a bit too personal. Her eyes seemed to brighten. It's my design. I own it. Copyright. She lifted her arm again. I could see the fine lines, the swirl of vegetation, the indication of water. It really was beautifully drawn. He did it freehand, you know, my artist. He's like that. Great imagination, great technique. And I leaned forward and examined it again. The green of the leaves and trailing tendrils, so exact and perfect, vibrant colours. The large white flowers, almost velvety. Golden stamens dusted with pollen. It was amazing. I did my best to avoid looking at the tiny figure, half hidden in the crook of her elbow now, hanging, tendrilled, held in place, but it almost drew me in. I could see the greenery around its legs and arms, like ropes. And that second tiny, distant figure, almost lost in the wrinkle of her skin. Was that a third? She moved her arm back again. The artist had captured the first figure perfectly, I realised, so detailed, so tiny, so precise. It appeared to float on her skin, held fast under the water, motionless, dead. Inwardly, I shuddered. What a thing. I didn't want to appear rude, so I smiled so broadly and I raised my glass. We both drank again. Music now playing from some hidden speakers. Ambient jazz. And her voice lifted. Poor Rex. She indicated her arm. He drowned, you know. And she looked into my face. After this was done, a tragic accident. And the light in the bar was dim and red now. But her face looked almost wolfish. Fancy that. Him being a strong swimmer and all. She clicked her fingers and I blinked at the sound. Just like that. Just like the others. Her next words were a little slurred. They didn't seem they were for me. 
Tattoos have power. They do. They do. I breathed in slowly. She wasn't with me, not right then. Oh, oh yes, yes, I can believe that. And she suddenly held my gaze. He shouldn't have been so mean to me. He really shouldn't. None of them should. I kept my expression neutral. Her tone was harder now. Hmm, yeah, yeah. I wasn't sure what to say. She rubbed her skin. The colours of the tattoos now different in the dim bar light. She pointed. There was a space, an empty, untouched area of skin, just inside her bicep. And she gave a strange half-smile, her eyes distant, and her voice seemed almost sing-song, like a child. That's for the one. You know, the good man I'll find. And if not, there's space below. She'd almost rhymed it like a nursery rhyme, and a chill ran through me. I thought I'd heard rushing water, gurgling, bubbling, splashing, gasping. My phone suddenly bleeped, and her eyes seemed to refocus. Oh, huh, I said, excuse me, I'd just better grab this, and I shrugged theatrically. <laughs> Business never sleeps. And quickly getting off my stool, I headed back into the reception area, pretending to listen to my phone. I glanced back. She was still there, the girl, her head now resting on her upturned palm, the soft bar light slowly turning from red to blue to white. And she languidly stretched, her lithe body muscled and perfect, and the tattoos seemed brighter from a distance. And then they moved. A closed flower opened, a new tendril snaking around its stem. And that's when I ran. Tattoos have power. Believe me, they do. Well, that should give you a bit of an idea of where we're going with this section. And so, moving on as quickly as I can today, not to waste your time, the next story we hope is going to make you... Uh, we don't know what it's going to make you do, but we think you're going to enjoy it. And it's called Mr Snuggles. He put his book down. Oh, Christ, he thought. That bloody cat again. He could hear it through the wall, yowling at all hours. Miss Sato next door. It was always in his bloody garden, too shitting. Why didn't he do business in her garden? Little flea bag. And he sighed. <laughs> Miss Sato with her floaty poncy dresses, chunky jewellery. Some friggy hippie, I don't know. Stupid bitch, he thought. Japanese or Chinese or some, some I don't know. Ha. He'd spoken to her four times now, in a month, always about her cat. Had a bloody silly name. Mr Snuggles. Friggin' Mr Snuggles? He'd hear her talking to it, like it was a person. How are you today, Mr Snuggles? What's the weather like, Mr Snuggles? Mad cow. It was a bloody cat. What was he going to do? Talk back? What was wrong with her? He remembered the first time he'd gone round, and he'd seen on her arm a tattoo of a cat. And it was, well, unmissable, really. Black, a sort of panther thing, highly detailed. A bit weird, he thought. Who'd want a cat on their arm? But she was tch, not his type. Never a nod or a smile. It was actually like he didn't exist. And if he saw her on the street, he just crossed over. What was the point? Screw her, unsatiable bitch and a stupid cat. He'd only met her once properly, to talk, unusually, not to complain. And that had been a few months after she bought the flat next door. 
They'd been at that street party, that jubilee thing. She'd been with a fat prat from across the road and that woman with a massive bazongo, who's Gloria Gladys Glendra, I don't know. He thought to himself, what a group, what a bunch, eh? Apparently the other woman worked in the local dry cleaners, he was an artist, and Miss Weirdo was a web designer. What a bunch. And what have they been talking about? Cats. Typical her, talking about graphic depictions of them, the importance of them, on houses, on her skin. Saying some old bollocks that in her culture they protected their owners from evil spirits, from those that would do them harm. She was just an idiot. Apparently she believed cats could see them and capture them and that's why they went out at night because that's when the evil spirits slept. He just shook his head. What was the point listening? Then she carried on. She said spirits were vulnerable then. Cats, for fuck's sake, catching evil spirits, my ass. Talking of which, he had to admit she was fit. Quite a nice body, eh? He liked to capture that, he thought. And then he dismissed the thought. What was he thinking? She was one of those cat women, nuttier than a fruitcake. Of course, fat Pratt across the road had been lapping it up. Typical, probably trying to get into a pants problem. Although, it was probably gay looking at his shoes. Gary didn't like people much. And he certainly didn't like Miss Sato. He knew that. And that night, he got a takeaway. Chinese, noodles, duck, crackers. He'd eat the lot inside on his own. The air outside was sticking uncomfortable. So he left the patio doors open. The hope of any breeze welcomed the summer well and truly in full swing. But he'd barely taken a mouthful when he heard her calling to her cat. Oh, God, every friggin' evening the same time. He looked. She was standing out on her patio, wearing some dressing gown, and he could make out a figure when the sun lit her shape up. Nice, he thought. He knew what she needed, and it wasn't catnip. And then her voice rose in pitch. Mr Snuggles. It went up and down. Mr Snuggles, it's dinner time. Gary sighed. What was she thinking? What the bloody thing could understand her? And this went on for about five minutes, as always, every evening. Finally, he stood up from the table and moving closer, he peered through the blinds. Something caught his eye and he glanced up. At the top of his garden, a shape appeared through the bushes. Mr Snuggles. He felt his jaw tighten. Why did the bloody thing come into his garden? Why not hers? I mean, the gardens were virtually the same. All right, she had a nicer shed and a pagodry thing, but, well. He thought to himself, Hang on. The cat was coming low. And scanning around, he looked for something to throw at it. Mr Snuggles, he heard a calling. And this time... It seemed to prick its ears up, and like a blur it flew across his lawn before he could move, and it scrambled up his fence, and in a skitter of claws and paws it bounded into her arms, and she snuggled her face down into him, and whipping around, she went quickly back inside. Damn! Shame, he thought, could have thrown some at the little sod. Plus he was enjoying the view. He'd snuggle her, he thought. Hmm. Dinner, he thought noodles and he pushed her from his mind 
and cracking open his third beer, he sat down, flicking the television on. That week ran by, and finally Saturday came. Great, he thought, the weekend. The patio was warming up, the summer heat still rising day on day, and it was sunny and bright, with a bit of a breeze. A yawning. He put his car manual down on the outside table. Nice, just chill, just chill, he thought. And he sat back, stretching his legs wide. He took a sip of his beer, and then he heard the rustling. He looked around. The noise came again. There, under his lavender bush, he could see its outline. That frigging cat doing its business again in his garden. He told her enough times and she just said cats were hard to control. They liked territories. She'd even offered to buy him some plants, but he'd just stopped listening. He'd heard it all before. Right, he'd see about that. Time to teach the little fur bag a lesson. He froze, sitting perfectly still, making no sudden movements, and he looked at Mr Snuggles. Mr Snuggles looked back at him. Gary moved very slowly and his garden chair creaked slightly and he froze again. And now, judging his aim, he suddenly hurled his magazine and it struck the cat with a thud and he grinned. Bingo! Hit the little sod. And with a howl of pain, the animal sprung away, now limping. Serve your bloody right. Thought Gary, shit in my flower bed, and he grinned again. <laughs> what was the cat going to do? Tell on him, and he chuckled to himself. Yeah, nice one. Time for another beer. The day off went well, he thought. He spoke to his mate Baz, he fixed the dodgy bathroom shelf, hoovered the spare room, and finally he sat and watched the football. He loved his days off, those weekends. Life for him was simple, but the heat was getting a bit much now, he thought, and it made him a bit dozy, the drink not exactly helping. And then Gary napped, snoring loudly. It was only a reversing delivery van outside that finally woke him up. And he stretched, oh God, and his back ached from his awkward sleeping position, his neck clicking slightly. He looked outside and the street lights had come on. It was a lot darker now and groggily he rose from the sofa, the television still flickering on the wall, some old film in black and white. Then he heard a voice. It was from next door. He looked at the clock. It was midnight, for Christ's sake. What was she going on about now? And he pressed his ear to the wall. It was her. Miss Sato talking to that cat. Her tone, pitiful, sad. And he heard the cat meowing. Sad woman, talking to a cat. He imagined her, <laughs> right then on her knees, he'd give her what she needed. Yeah, evil spirits, my ass. He'd like to see her cat protect her from him. <laughs> he'd make her meow. And then he grinned and shook himself. Gah, he hoped he taught the little flea bag a lesson. Maybe he'd think twice now before shitting in his flower bed. Yeah. Oh, this is ridiculous. And he groaned and stretched. Yeah, bed, now. And slowly he stumbled up the stairs. Happily the bedroom was cooler, the windows flung wide open. And he fell virtually face down and soon was fast asleep. The hours passed 
and Gary tossed and turned on his bed. <sighs> it was so hot. The air was close and still, a tiny breeze flooding in. When behind the curtain, a shadow seemed to fill the wall. Suddenly, large, sinuous, rippling, cat-like. He opened his eyes, briefly, for other eyes were now focused on him. They both stood in the doorway, the police constables, and Miss Sato listened. Yes, she said, that was unusual. No, she hadn't heard from her neighbour. No, no. Six months now. Ooh, missing. <gasps> Dear. His family were concerned. Well, not heard from him. She nodded sympathetically. Y y well, yes, Gary had been her neighbour. Yeah, but they didn't really talk much. He worked away a lot, she thought. Sorry not to be more helpful. But it was worrying, though, to hear he just vanished. And the WPC assured her she wasn't in any danger. It just sometimes happened. Usually no one was involved. It was just them following up on inquiries. She then confided in her. Do you know, people just sometimes disappear. They just leave, they run off. There was always a reason. Drugs, drink, relationships, religion. The list was actually pretty long. The young PC interrupted her. Yeah, it's nothing to worry about. It's just that his family said it was a bit out of character. But, well, there was no accounting for what people did. Miss Sato glanced at them and smiled again as he held a picture up. She stared at it. Oh, y yes, I remember him, but I'm sorry, officers. I, no, I haven't seen him. He did keep himself pretty much to himself if you just ask the neighbours. She lowered her voice to a whisper. Some people around here thought he was a bit standoffish. You know, it's a London thing. She smiled briefly and the WPC nodded conspiratorially. She lowered her voice. Yeah, you've got a point. It's a sad commentary on modern society, don't you think? Oh, well, that's London for you. And now she let her voice get louder. Well, Miss Sato, thanks very much for talking to us. If you hear of anything, anything at all, just let us know. Here's my card. So, sorry to have bothered you. We do appreciate your time. And she looked at the doorbell. Um, Miss Sato, did I pronounce that correct? Yes, she said. Yes, Miss Sato. The young policeman suddenly glanced at her arm. Oh, that's an interesting tattoo, he said. And he pointed it out to his colleague. Oh, look at that, isn't it clever? Beautifully drawn. And Miss Sato murmured a thank you. Um, is it a panther or a, is it a cat or something? She nodded. Cat, she said. And as she spoke, Mr Snuggles meowed behind her. Miss Sato turned. Oh, I'm so sorry, but it's his tea time. The PC was now squinting at her arm. That drawing was amazing. It was elaborate. Black and streaked with red and yellow. And the eyes on it, it was wild. Big paws outstretched, claws extended. He peered. It was holding something. A mouse. The unfortunate thing hanging upside down, hanging by its tail. He looked again. Its terrified face was almost human. And Miss Sato looked at him quizzically. Oh, sorry, 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 so nodded there. Yeah, best feed your little fella, eh? You, you have a good day now. And she closed the door and the PC turned to her friend and they began to move off. Back in the flat, Mr Snuggles purred loudly and Miss Sato laughed. 
and she said something, and he meowed again, brushing between her legs, his purr rising like a sleepy beehive. And outside in the street it was warm and pleasant, the wind briefly moving the trailing branches. And the WPC offered a colleague a piece of Kit Kat, and he chewed it thoughtfully. And then it struck him. <laughs> nah, it couldn't be. And he pulled a photo back from his pocket. Gary Wilkinson, their missing person. <laughs> that was a bit weird. That little mouse on her arm on the tattoo, its face. That's funny, he thought. It looked just like him. Well, that's an ending, yeah. Anyway, what I'd like to say now is that as we repeat myself on every single one of this particular podcast series, we're not going to do the writing tips as we have been doing. Please look at that on our social media. Just allows us today to zoom so you get the three stories nice and quick. And the last one, well, we think it's going to make you smile and it's going to make you feel good. And the title is The Guide. The divorce had been difficult, inevitable, sad. It was no one's fault. They'd been very young. She'd felt it. Yeah, it was right to move on. It was amicable, just just sad. There was nothing to celebrate. She told her friends it was just a fact. And the one thing that had made it bearable, Millie. The darling Millie, a little fairy, a daughter. Ten years old, cheeky, bright, cuddlesome. Claire had been surprised. The easy birth, the calm baby, her beautiful daughter. Childcare, luckily, had never been an issue. Her mum ever ready to step in. Dad retired and Tony, now her ex-husband, the son of one of Dad's business partners at the garage. Tony. Nice, pleasant, a little dull. And if she was honest, that's what had killed the marriage. He just had no fire in him. If he had, it had long since gone out. But he was a nice man. He was a great father. But as a husband, no, not now. She examined her ankle and shivered. It had stung a bit, but that had been over a week ago. But it was perfect, her new tattoo. She'd never had one. She'd felt so excited. It had been Tanya's idea, her best friend. She said Claire should mark the start of a new life, in some way. And the tattoo idea had been hers. Claire had loved it. Millie loved it. And Ashley, the young girl in the shop, had been brilliant, super talented, and they chatted for hours. And now there she was, delicately drawn, fine gossamer wings, a little cheeky smile holding a tiny candle lamp. A sweet fairy. Perfect. She'd even given her a name. Titania, after all, she was a fairy, a fairy queen. Ashley had drawn her, first onto paper, then traced it onto Claire by hand. Beautiful work, completely original and Claire had been charmed. She looked at her. She was gorgeous and she shivered. Titania had been named because, and Ashley had listened very carefully, because she felt like a queen. Then Claire had talked about Tony a little, the new star, and that's when Ashley had said it. That's what Titania was. She was a guide leading her to a new future to help it in troubled times. A permanent bit of magic in ink. And it really had struck a chord, hence the little lamp had been added. A guide in troubled times, a light to lead the way. Ah. She sat up in her bath, steam filling the air. 
She always liked it hot. God, it was great just to have some time for herself. Millie was with Grandma and Grandad, off in the caravan, the New Forest. So now she had the entire weekend to herself. Luxury. Yeah. She sipped her Prosecco. Ooh, lovely. Life was good, she felt. The company was going great guns. She sold jewellery, handmade, high-end, Claire's degree in fine art. She started the company when she'd first met Tony. He'd worked for Beechwoods, a furniture company. He was a craftsman, a really talented guy, and he'd followed in his father's footsteps. But she'd realised he was more than a quiet man. He was like his father, a hard worker, dedicated a bit too much. After the divorce, obviously he'd moved out the house, got himself a flat near town. And he seemed happy enough. She sighed. It was just all a bit sad. She didn't wish him ill. But she couldn't think of any other way to describe it. The months had passed and she hadn't found anyone else. She'd not really been looking. But not yet, her mother had said encouragingly. And the fact was, she was still thrown by it all. Surprised even. It had to happen, the split. She'd known that. They weren't happy, that much was clear. And more to the point, she wasn't happy. And for Millie's sake, they both talked it through. They'd agreed. A bad atmosphere was not good for anyone. It had upset Millie at first. But then she got used to it. Children do, her divorced friends had said. But now that had been over a year and a half ago and things had settled, it was working out. Tony worked a lot, always did. That had been one of the issues. He was a driven sort of guy. But happily, he'd settled into having Millie on every other six weekend. Plus there were trips and treats. And the balance was pretty good, she felt. It worked, thankfully. Her mother's voice was calm. Millie. Claire stood up, grabbing for a towel, her heart suddenly beating. What? This couldn't be happening. Claire could now hear voices behind her mother. Then a siren. And she felt her legs needed to go away. Millie? Lost? L lost where? Her mother was close to tears. She could hear it. And then Dad came on the line. I'm so sorry, love. We just turned our backs for a second. And his breathing sounded tight. She was in a clearing just in front of the woods, just 50 yards from the caravan. We went inside to get the supper. And when we came back out, she'd gone. Claire struggled to stay calm. And her dad continued. Look, we called out. I went in the woods. But she vanished, love. And his voice was near to breaking. The police are here now uh, and all the others on the site. There's people in the woods. Don't, don't, don't worry. In the background, a rumble of thunder suddenly distorted the speaker. Look, we've been told to wait here, love. Everything that can be done is being done. But she couldn't really hear him now. A picture flooding her head. Her little Millie, alone in the dark, in strange woods. And tears ran down her face and she felt helpless. Dad... She fought to keep her voice steady. Is that thunder? She could hear the worry in his voice. It's the weather, love. It, it just turned. And now she could hear water, rain of some kind, battering the caravan windows. My God, she said, is it raining, Dad? Please say it's not raining. She could now picture her daughter, wet, in the dark, alone. And she began to tremble uncontrollably, her breath coming in gasps. Keep it together, she thought. Keep it together. She knew had to. She focused for Millie's sake. But her heart ached physically. Her little baby lost. She was three hours away. 
and her dad must have read her mind. Now look, love, it's no use you trying to come up now. You're probably no condition to drive. She'll turn up. I'm sure she will. His voice now sounding desperate, and Claire was crying now, utterly powerless. Her heart felt like it would break, and her dad was crying, and suddenly... I'm sorry, Sol, love. I'm sorry. Dad, it's not your fault. You know what she's like. She she just wandered off. She just got turned around. She couldn't find her way. She saw a squirrel or a rabbit or... I don't know. But her dad's voice suddenly sounded miles away. I'm still sorry. I'm so sorry. But then Mum came on the line, her voice strong. Now, she's a little toughy as our Millie. She'll turn up. You two hear me now. She'll turn up. Goodness knows, love. We lost you a few times. Her voice seemed lighter. Remember Cambersans, eh? Claire's whirling mind stopped, the memory like a break. Cambersans. She'd been eight years old. That caravan holiday where Dad had bought the new car, his pride and joy, a Jaguar, green and sleek, the caravan painted to match it. She remembered now. She'd been playing, her new kite, her little heart soaring with it. Higher and higher it went, the string almost right to the end. And then she'd heard her mother's calling, but the kite had been too brilliant for her to ignore. And then a huge gust of wind just started to tumble and twist the kite as it ran along the ground, whipping along the beach, vast and empty, fast, her little legs running after it as fast as she could. Along she chased, her little legs tumbling along now, hitting the sand, striking the sand, tumbling, then lifting. And then she found herself behind a high sandy bank. The kite, somewhere ahead of her. She scrambled along. She wasn't going to lose it. But the sand rose higher, and up and over she'd gone, over dunes, clambering, hand over hand, the brisk breeze pushing the kite ever on, until finally she'd caught it, tangled in some tall sprouting grass. Then she felt the terror. She was lost. She didn't know where she was. The high bank, soft and difficult to climb, and she started crying, her breath tight and painful. And up she'd scrambled, but back she'd fallen, the sand sliding away. She couldn't see where she was. And then, that voice. Dad, yelling her name, yelling her name. And she screamed as hard as she could, and he came flying over the top of a dune, ten feet away, his face determined, anxious looking. But fear-free. And he'd scooped her up, covering her in kisses, holding her tight, promising her ice cream and fizzy drink. And he picked up her kite and she clung to his neck, tightly shaking, still crying with him hushing, his voice gentle. It's all right, baby girl, it's all right. Daddy's here, daddy's keeping you safe. Let, let's go find mummy, shall we find mummy? And she held him tightly, clinging to him for dear life. And he'd held her tightly and she knew she'd never let go his arms strong and comforting. The memory still strong, but the bath now cold. She stood and tugged her bathrobe. She felt a surge of love suddenly flew through her. Dad, her daddy, now crying to her, some hundred plus miles away. She wished Millie had some way a, a light, a candle, her little fairy Millie, out there alone. And she spoke aloud, bring her home, bring her home. Come on, come on. She wasn't religious, she just said it, a prayer to the universe. And then suddenly Mum's voice changed, suddenly, lighter. She heard shouting and her mum laughed. She's found, love. Oh, she's found. Oh, it's the ambulance man. 
Her heart pounded in her chest and a man's voice came on the phone. Sorry about the little wait. Nothing to worry about, madam. Uh, my colleague, uh, P P PC, yeah, PC Daniels, he said she made her own way back. Bless her little heart. Little thing like that. Brave as well. He just spotted her now coming across the meadow. She's absolutely safe and sound. She's a bit wet. My colleagues just checked her over. And to be honest, there's nothing to concern yourself. Children are very resilient in these circumstances, you'll find. More than adults. I reckon a hot shower, a cuddle or two, I think would be a good idea. Now, yeah, leave the blanket on her a little bit longer, though. And then she heard her mum thanking everybody. Claire sat down on the floor, her back against the bathtub. She was now almost hysterical with relief, her legs trembling, the release of it. And then on the phone, she could hear Millie's voice now, calm and clear, saying sorry. Someone said, bless her little darling. And then her dad laughing, sheer relief in his tone. And then Millie on the phone. I'm sorry, Mummy, I really am. You see, there was this magpie. And Claire didn't really hear the next part. She was crying so hard. And Millie chatted on with Claire saying, it's all right, darling, it's all right until eventually Mum came back on the line. It was all fine, she said, her old brisk tone back. The nice ambulance man had said Millie was fine. She needed a hot shower and a cuddle or two. And then Mum said they'd come back tomorrow a bit earlier, given the circumstances, and Claire happily agreed. And then she could hear Dad promising Millie hot chocolate, her favourite. And Claire closed her eyes. It was over. The terror, the pain, the fear, over. For Millie was safe. That night, she slept like a log. The release of it all, she thought. Until at lunchtime, she heard the front door and Millie rushed in and she scooped her up, covering her face with kisses. Her daughter hugging her tightly. And then Mum and Dad clattered in with some things and they made their excuses and left. Claire hugged them both extra hard. It must have been so difficult for them. It wasn't their fault. Until finally, it was just... Claire and Millie. She looked at her precious child, happily lolling on the sofa, drawing in a colouring book, humming to herself, unconcerned. Yesterday, just a distant memory now. Typical. Children so strong sometimes. Suddenly, something occurred to her. Something she'd been meaning to ask. Darling, she said, how did you know how to find your way back to the caravan? And Millie looked at her, her face untroubled. Oh, that was easy, Mummy, I thought, at home. Then I heard your voice, and then I just followed Titania. Claire smiled and glanced down at her ankle. Ashley's fine work. Little Titania, the fairy guide. The magic, that exquisite lantern. She looked at her daughter's open, innocent face. What a little darling. She'd seen it so many times. She just had such an imagination. Claire thought she wouldn't mention it again. It's just best forgotten. Let's just move on, she thought. But thank God she found her way back. That was the main thing. How clever of you, darling. How clever. Now, who wants ice cream? Millie looked up and smiled. Oh, I do, Mummy, she yelled, smiling. But she wasn't smiling about the ice cream. Because it was something else. And she smiled again. But Mummy hadn't seen it. It was her ankle. Titania's wings, a blur now. Her little candle flickering and burning brighter and brighter. And Titania winked, and Millie winked back. Now, if that didn't make you go, ah, oh, we don't know what else will do that to you. 
Anyway, it's time for us to say goodbye here at 3wsthestoryhive.co.uk. Please look at our main platform and listen to our work there as well. There's a vast selection. Anyway, it's time for me to go. So today's Hope the World is, I hope the world is ripe with wonder. Bye now.